Good day, Brigade. This is Bobby coming at you with a special episode here. Going to be covering a little bit on the situation and the history behind Russia, Ukraine, and all that nasty, nasty business. Because, my God, is this a can of worms. But, at the same time, we've also actually kind of looked into a little bit of this history beforehand without actually having any sort of purpose for it. So we're going to try to divest a little bit of this knowledge to you, cover a little bit of history, and show why this whole situation really is as fucked as you think it is. Anyways, before we get into that, as per usual, we're going to give you a nice, rather interesting fact. And I think this one's going to be a very indirect, fitting, thematically thing. Did you know that like blood types, people have special stool types, if you will? Basically, your poop is unique. So, say eventually down the line you might need a fecal transplant. Yes, this is a thing, by the way. They would actually have to figure out what your stool type is in order to transplant the feces you need. This is why you probably shouldn't get enemas unless you absolutely need it. They would transplant the feces that you have inside your body, which is naturally there and very helpful. Keep it there and replace it with stool of the same type. If they don't, you could actually suffer septic shock and die. And this is how we know you have unique poop types, if you will. Anyways, enough with that shitty information, let's get on with this shitty information. So, as we've stated, we're going to cover a little bit of history and all that fun jazz. And a little bit of what's playing into here about what's going on here in the Russia-Ukraine situation. We said here a lot, but, you know, locations. <laughs> anyway, so as you've, I hope you've heard anyway. Right now, Russia is backing separatist interests within Ukraine. Separatists we're going to be putting here in quotes because we're going to, trust me, we're going to explain that one. It's going to be a whole thing. Backing, quote, separatist movements within eastern Ukraine. In response to this, Ukraine has been, no, Russia's incurring on proper sovereign Ukrainian territory, and while a bit fractious, it is sovereign Ukrainian territory, nevertheless. So, the two lands in question, and basically the whole region, are the Republic of Domtitsk, I am almost guaranteed mispronounced that, and Luhansk. Sorry, I am hitting hard on those Ks. So basically, Russia's saying they're backing separatist movements there with peoples that see themselves more as identifying with the Russian people rather than the Ukrainian people. And even more recently, Putin has gone on to basically say, no, not basically say, he has said that he does not recognize the right of Ukraine to exist. And this is big. Because historically, that's been a pretty common theme among Russia. From the Tsars, 
to the Soviets, to Putin. <laughs> now we can even say Putin. This is just a thing of Russia. But why is that? Well, we're gonna need to dive into a lot of history and we're gonna stay right now. This is gonna be a bit abbreviated because this is a story. This is a big, big story. Like, even reading it and studying it in the time that I did, and trust me, I'm not an expert by any means on this, but this is a story. What we're going to abbreviate are what we believe are the major, major, major points. But we do insist that you check out the history of Russia, Ukraine, and really all the East Slavic peoples. Because, man, that is... That is one for the ages. Well, anyways, historically, both the Ukrainian and Russian peoples do derive from the same general ethnicity. They derive from the Rus. There are two major Rus groups that eventually formed after the Mongol hordes had left East Europe. There were the Kievan Rus, who were in large part a huge, huge fighter of those Mongol hordes and a big reason why they were ultimately forced out. And the more recent, but still very useful, very notable, and well, you know them today, the Muscovite Rus, based around Moscow. Now the Muscovites and the Kievan Rus do come from the original same people, the Rus. Now who were the Rus? They were a steppe nomadic Slavic peoples that eventually settled down and established places like Kiev, Moscow, and pretty much all the eastern, southern Russian regions. Or rather, I guess, west if you're talking in the perspective of Russia. <laughs> Well, anyways, they were these steppe peoples that fought off the Mongol hordes and basically liberated their lands and established kingdoms and duchies along the way. One of the biggest ones being Musco Moscow and Kiev. These two were big. Originally, Kiev was the major center of the trade along the Don River. However, over time, the Muscovites did grow to be more influential and more fortunate, trading with the Novgorodians, being around the Baltic area, having those connections, eventually rivaling against Sweden and all that, and basically having an interesting time. However, the Kievan Rus had a bit of a different story. They were based around Kiev, and Kiev was doing all right, but then Kiev eventually got invaded, taken down, controlled by Lithuania of all countries, <laughs> eventually subsumed into the Commonwealth, all that sort of fun jazz. And in this, the Crimean steppe nomads and stuff are doing their thing, and, you know, history's going on, the Muscovites are growing, eventually become the state of Russia. And what is Russia? Well, literally the land of the Rus. It is at this point that Russia is that the Muscovites are considering themselves the dominant Rus tribe, the dominant Rus people. And politically and geographically speaking, they're absolutely correct. They're on the upswing, gaining economic and political and military successes, whereas the Kievan Rus have basically lost their homeland. 
However, the Kievan Rus have gone, undergone some interesting changes as well, no longer being recognized as the Kievan Rus, but rather as the Ruthenians. Now, they weren't the only ones to be recognized as the Ruthenians, and there were two major groups, the Red Ruthenians and the White Ruthenians. No, this has nothing to do with politics, but they eventually formed off, the White Ruthenians became the peoples we know as the Ukrainians and all of that, and the Red Ruthenians turned more towards Belarusian and becoming Belarusian eventually. So yeah, Belarus is included in this too, but they're not really important to our story right now. They have their own story and their own struggles right now. Well, anyways, getting back to our main point. At this time, you've got the Ruthenian ethnic identity deriving itself out of the Kievan Rus. Now, Russia, being the land of the Rus, only saw it fit that all the lands of the Rus should be Russia. And when you think about it, in terms of romantic nationalism and the early ideas of national identity and all that kind of thing, which the Muscovites were well on their way to at this point, it kind of makes some sort of sense. This is where Russia starts trying to take its influence and in dominating over East Europe. And this is the beginning. See, a lot of East Europe was kind of happy not being Russia. Namely, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, parts of Prussia, the Bal northern Baltic states of Estonia and all them. Well, I don't think they were known as Estonia at that point. It was like Livonia and all that. And in the more southern regions, the Ruthenian peoples, which were still under the control of the Commonwealth. Now, the Rus, or the Russians now, decided to expand their sphere of influence over this area and literally conquer these territories. Now, a large part of this was a response of unifying their peoples. Another large part of this was getting closer to the West and being more economically and technologically competitive. Another part of this was cutting off Ottoman influence. There were a lot of complex reasons and simplistic ones too for why the Russians were doing this, but basically conquering land for the sake of conquering land and becoming a greater power. And Russia was well on its way towards becoming that great power that it sought. Over this time, they eventually expanded their influence out throughout the East and basically constructed their border with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth around the Don River, having the Kiev, city of Kiev under their influence and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth being on the other side. So, why is this important? Well, it actually leads to the genesis, sort of starts to lead to the genesis of the idea of Ukrainian. Now, why do we say that? What does Ukrainian mean? Well, Ukrainian translates into borderlander. They saw themselves as the people on the borderland of the Russian and Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth territories. They were the Ukrainians or Ukraina, or Ukraine. And I guarantee you I mispronounced that. I did take some Russian in college, it's just I am not the best at learning languages and I do sincerely apologize for that. Also, Ukrainian isn't exactly Russian either. 
there's similarities, you know, like you'd find similarities between Italian and, and Spanish and all that, but they're still different. And that's kind of the deal with Russian and Ukrainian. Not really important, but kind of an interesting side note. Now, why was the identity of the Ukrainians starting to form around this time? By the way, we should probably catch up on the timeline here. We're at the, at the point of the 19th century. Yeah, we kind of jumped a little bit quickly there. We went from the Commonwealth to all that. Oh, no, we're not at the 19th century. My apologies. The Commonwealth did not exist at then. We're starting to hit around the 18th, late getting into the 18th century when the Commonwealth was largely collapsed at this point. But they were still on the borderland, as you would know it. I believe with... I want to say the Austrians or Hungarians, one of those two, but I can't be certain. I do not recall right offhand, I apologize. Anyways, the identity of being Ukrainian or Ukrainian was starting to get around as the idea of being Ruthenian slowly became an insult by the Russian people. Yes, the Russian people turned the idea of being Ruthenian into an insult, which is in itself kind of an insult. Honestly, let them be the Ruthenians if they want to be the Ruthenians. It's a kick-ass name. Anyways, getting back to the point, the identity of the Ukrainian or borderlander was really starting to form around this time, especially as Russia, the Russian Empire was starting to consolidate its borders in the West. Over time, this led to a desire to be free and independent. The dawning of the Ukrainian national identity. Now we're starting to get into the 19th century and, oh, and the fun stuff. When the Ukrainian national identity was coming about, many, 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 many people outright rejected the idea. With even some philosophers like my personal favorite Rosa Luxemburg citing that it wasn't a real national identity, but rather more of a separatist idea to try to break away from the revolution or the idea of the revolution keep in mind at this point the ideas of communism and socialism were starting to spread around along with the ideas of romantic nationalism it's a fun time in europe philosophically speaking a nightmare if you're a fucking politician well anyways as the ukrainian national identity began to develop and grow they sought to be independent from the Russian Empire. Because, hey, we're related, but we're not you and you treat us like shit. Go the fuck away now. And Moscow was like, haha, nice joke. But at this point, Moscow was starting to enter into conflicts that it couldn't really deal with and started falling under some crazy stuff roll in World War One, and we got the Russian Empire starting to collapse. The revolution, the Russian Revolution starts, they get out of the war with Germany, lose a lot of land. First time the Kievans really get any sort of home back. Unfortunately, the Russians come back. This time as the Soviets. Ukraine gets subsumed and becomes a part of the Russian parts, and I think eventually does in fact actually get its own autonomous territory. Well, quote-unquote autonomous. 
But basically, once we get into the whole idea of it, the whole reason for Russia wanting Ukraine is not only do they see it as their land and reject the idea of a Ukrainian national identity, but they genuinely see it as an integral part of their territory and their sphere of influence. And naturally, with really strong national powers, you don't want anyone meddling in that sphere of influence. I mean, we're no different in the American Union. We have our sphere of influence, and we don't like it when people meddle into it. And just the same, the Russians see Ukraine as a part of their sphere of influence, though Ukraine does not, and they don't want us interfering into it. And that's a large part of why they don't want Ukraine to consider joining NATO. Because if they did join NATO, they would see it as a direct attack. Not only that, but the NATO region is now properly encroached within what they consider Russian territory. They now have what they consider Russian people in NATO, and they are not friendly. Now keep in mind, the Ukrainian national identity, in our belief, is very real. They have earned it, they have struggled for it, and they deserve to have their territory stay sovereign. But as Putin and many of the Russian oligarchy, and basically the Neo-Russian Empire, it's not a Russian Federation, it's the Neo-Russian Empire, let's be real. Tsar Volodya does not want NATO in there. And it kind of makes sense. But at the same time, it's not right. It's understandable why they're doing it, but it is not right. So, as you probably heard a little bit on the background, Donetsk and Luhansk are apparently separatist nations, but realistically speaking, it's almost all but inevitable that they would be subsumed into Russia. Because, let's face it, Putin's just trying to do what Russia has been doing for centuries. Taking over and dominating Eastern Europe. That's just kind of how they see themselves. They did it with the Empire. They did it with the Warsaw Pact. They're giving it a pretty decent go with the CIS, but it's still not good enough for them. And there's still holdouts. But, basically, there are two big questions we're going to answer. One, is World War III likely to happen? Well, there's a lot of reason to see that, especially since you have the historical rivalry between the United States and the Soviets, now Russia. And many are saying this is the second Cold War. Though honestly, in my personal opinion, I don't think the Cold War ever actually ended. It just changed who was one of the sides. It really just changed the face of the other side. But the f answer, I believe, to that question is not yet. It certainly is possible, and this can easily be seen as a cause to the run-up of a world Third World War. Like, if you were to look back in a Third World War war to occur, this event would almost guaranteed be in your history book. Even the Crimean situation of 2014, which this is an extension of, would be in your history book. Now the second question, does this mean war between Russia and Ukraine? 
pretty much inevitably, yes. This is pretty much a declaration of war. Putin has pretty much affirmed that yes, he's going in. But he hasn't said he's going in. Rather, he's using the classic Roman tactic of defending the interests of people who ask. In other words, nah, we're not invading, we're defending. We're protectors. It's kind of a way to twist the narrative in your favor. And naturally, with the Russian media, I'm certain that he's twisting this narrative in Russia as much to his favor as he possibly can. Now, whether or not the Russian people actually wholeheartedly believe it, I'm honestly going to believe that we're probably at about a 50, uh, maybe a 50-50, 60-40, 60 being the uh, believing and the 40 being the opposed to Putin faction, because <laughs> they do exist and they are pretty sizable. But that's kind of what we see, is this is largely Putin trying to steer the narrative into Russia's favor. And for Russian media, it's probably working to the way they want it to. As for whether or not it's having the effect they desire, it's kind of hard for us to say. It'd be much easier if we could actually see in. But it's going to be difficult being in America. <laughs> so a third question to ask. Why is Russia being so overt about this now? Well, there's a few reasons to this. And a lot of it has to deal with what's going on. So right now, let's take consideration at all that's occurring. There's the winding down of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has been going on for a few years now. There is civil unrest throughout the United States and large parts of the Western world, largely due to these restrictions and lockdowns and all that. In addition to this, many right-wing ultranationalists and nationalists in general had taken over many of these Western nations in the past few years and have implemented policies that seem very short-sighted and have actually damaged in the long term. One main example, and I will not stop stating this, would be in the American Union, how we have turned towards a more protectionist viewpoint under Trump in trying to quote-unquote, preserve steel and coal and all that. But as a result of that, we have instigated a trade war with China, which was one of our major suppliers and one of our major trade partners, torpedoed free trade with many of our allies throughout the world, have had much worse terms negotiated for many of these trade pacts, had a revision of NAFTA, which ultimately kind of just didn't really change much, it just made things suckier. Though you can debate this idea all you want. But the point is, and this part is inarguable, the shifting towards a protectionist idea in a state that wasn't already, in a nation state that wasn't already very heavily a producing economy and had largely switched to a trade-based economy, adding into that limiting the trade overall, plus a pandemic that limited supplies further, torpedoing your trade deals with your greatest partner, naturally, it's gonna lead to some supply issues. Because you've just put up a shit ton of barriers to supply chains. And by doing so, 
you have in turn set up a long-term fuck you. Now you won't feel you wouldn't feel the effects right away, especially we noticed during the administration it didn't seem to be much of a problem and in fact provided a short-term boost. However, there were many accounts of not only this not being a long-term solution, but being a tragic mistake. You have the issue of, while well, company stocks were growing for domestic companies in America, there were still no openings of steel plants like promised. There weren't many jobs being produced, as many jobs being produced like promised. There weren't people getting back to work as promised. Sure, they were getting into jobs, but not the jobs they were seeking or the jobs they desired. They were going to what jobs were left and available. Come the pandemic hit, poor and mishandled response, limited engagement with actually trying to do anything about it, and then boasting all the while about doing everything about it. That part actually isn't necessarily as important, but it's still something that was kind of annoying. You're going to put a strain on that supply. And when you have that strain on that supply, and a limiting of that overall supply, and reducing the possibility of stockpiling by reducing the amount of supply you're getting in by trade, you have effectively screwed yourself. Like, supply chain issues and inflation issues in the American Union right now should be of no surprise to anyone with basic sense. You have, pe you have corporations and people and businesses and all that, not all of them mind you, but a good chunk of them, hiking up their prices in addition to inflation, having their most profitable years on record, not paying their employees really much at all, and having to go on frequent strikes to have to even fight for your wages. Actually had to be a part of this too. Actually went on strike myself. <laughs> And having to force this hand is just, it's just putting even more strain on a system that honestly shouldn't have been put under any of this amount of strain to begin with. Yes, you got the short-term benefits of protectionism, but at the cost of the long-term gains in value that the free trade system we the more free trade system we had in place did. You've screwed yourself. And you might be wondering, well, isn't this Biden's fault? No! This is, a, this is the issue of a lot of fucking policy ideas long simmering through multiple administrations. We're not just calling out Trump on this. Keep this in mind. He was just the biggest idiot. Though he, was, he did have a predecessor in, within the party he chose that was also a pretty big idiot. But basically, you put a drain on your supply chains, thought that a pandemic would make them better somehow, demanded that you go into pure domestic industry when there was not enough experience, skills, or desire for it, had all these major companies that were making their most profitable records yet, because of these policies, giving absolutely nothing in return and just pocketing it, and thus keeping more money out of the hands of circulation, you fucked yourself. It's like, this should be no surprise. This should be no surprise at all. 
If you want to solve this problem, it's going to take a lot of work. But first and foremost, you need to start loosening the protectionist policies because they are not helping at all. Second, you need to start getting the money that's sitting up at the top and start getting it to flow and move. Putting it into things like public services and goods would be a great start. I know this is like antithetical, antithetical to the Republican ideal, but my god, they're fucking idiots and they should shut the fuck up by now. They need to realize their 19th century ideals aren't simply going to cut it anymore in a 21st century economy. We've learned some things. We've understood some things. And now we need to put those things into practice. We need to use the nation state to be a guardian and protector and helper of its people. And right now it's doing absolutely none of that because it's acting like a whiny selfish goddamn little brat. Anyways, getting back to our central point, this has led to Russia's greatest rival appearing much weaker. In addition to this, with our deviation, our moving away from China and our huge trade connections that Nixon set up for a very specific reason, by the way, you know, this reason right here, actually. It has allowed China to be more free with its ideals and be able to deviate away from what we want them to believe, and they have chosen to side more with Russia. Now, what will this lead to in the future? We're not sure. There's still a lot of icy relations between China and Russia, too. There was the Sino-Soviet split, the fact that the Communist Party of China still rules over the mainland, and the fact that Vladimir Putin is not exactly a fan of communism. He really is not. But anyways, with the rise of these right-wing people in the West making a more selfish individualist states that are in turn showing greater weakness to a power that will look for any goddamn opportunity it can find, honestly. That's just Russia. It is an opportunist by far. It's really no wonder that this is happening now. Russia seized the window of opportunity to try to seize control of at least part of Ukraine. And right now, it's very possible. Like, this is easily within their reach. To prevent this, the West is facing like a 7 out of 10 on diplomatic difficulty. At least. Realistically, I'd probably put it more at like a 9 out of 10. This is a really tough situation. But there is a way out. And it requires a show of strength, a return to the table with deal, trade deals with China and stuff, but we also have to be more firm about it. We can't let people get away with the things they've been getting away with, and we need to use our bigger greatest power, our economy, to start using that for sway. I'm not saying we should be pushing our ideals onto other sides, by no means, God no. The American ideal right now is a little bit too fucked up for that. We need to fix that one first, domestically. But basically, what you gotta do is start going out, reaching out to the world, and showing that Russia, no, we are not going to take it. Ukraine will not take it. And if you fight them, you're facing off against the world. Am I suggesting that war go, uh, go about? No, because Putin is a smart enough man to know when he's beat. Putin will not instigate a costly war for Russia, 
not that costly anyway. But we have to show that we're firm and that we are not going to hesitate when it comes to Ukraine. They are a friend, they are an ally, and they are most of all a sovereign state with the right to make their own decisions. It is by no means up for Putin to determine the foreign policy, domestic policy, and whether or not they can be independent at all for the Ukrainian people. This is a very clear message. We don't want Putin to isolate himself from the world, certainly not. But we can't let him take Ukraine and East Europe either. And right now, politically speaking, he's in a very good position to do that if we don't do something quick. And it's not just the United States that needs to do something. It's Germany, it's France, it's Spain, it's Britain, Ireland, Norway, Sweden. I mean, we're not even talking NATO members here. We're talking anyone who believes in the basic fundamentals of human rights. We need your support now more than ever. Because Russia sees us as weak. But we can't be that weak. No, we're not done yet. And we hope the rest of the world is still willing to take us back. Especially if we can ever figure this shit out. Anyways, that's our show for this special Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed it. We, If you liked it, share us. If you hate it, well, share us too. Say, hey, this guy's a fucking nut job rambling about on about what he thinks is right. Don't forget, nationalism is a big part of this. And like us, share us, follow us. We're going to be moving from Anchor in our first episode next week, in our next episode, should actually be on our new format. And we will announce what that is when we get there. It'll be a fun surprise. Anyways... Those who wish not to be tread upon should mind where they step, and I hope you have a great night and a pleasant tomorrow. Thank you for tuning in.